Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through his word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grace Pod, and we're in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11. And it's going to be a Grace Pod in two halves. There's a happy half and a tragic half. But the happy half is in chapter 10, where we get a glimpse in history of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about a kingdom that's not of this world. um, And you can't see it. um, But in history, you could see it. And it was a kingdom of this world. So it's like a little foreshadowing of the kingdom of King Jesus, but here on earth. And um, it's one of my favorite chapters, uh, not least because it's got the best tune, thanks to Handel with his music, The Arrival of the Queen of Sheba, which I would threaten to sing, but it's a bit too difficult without a violin. But um, think wedding marches and people coming down the aisle, and it it comes from here. It's a chapter of great celebration when this foreign dignitary, uh, the Queen of Sheba, comes to see Solomon because she's heard about him. And when she gets there, it even exceeds her expectations. And someone was saying in our group last night that this is unusual because we're in such a culture of bigging things up and over promising that usually you see there's some you know this holiday brochure this amazing place and you get there and it's not quite as nice as they said and the weather's great and turns out the, the photo was strategically cropped and it missed out the big concrete car park just to the left and but in this case she gets there and she says it's exceeded my expectation um i wasn't told the half of it do you want to tell us more about her what she finds so amazing yeah and this could easily be the high point of the whole Old Testament um this is really what everything that God had hoped for is starting to come to pass you know the everything's on track so it's a really beautiful moment and and the fact that the nations are coming in is itself exciting because Israel were given this um they were meant to be God's chosen nation that they would um other nations would see their wisdom and be drawn to them and that is what happens so she comes from a long way away from the south mm-hmm. And we know that she's a, an impressive woman herself, which is important. Um, when we get to verses 10 and 11, she gives Solomon 120 talents of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones, and so on. So um, it's, it's good to impress someone, you know, who's your neighbor. But if you can impress the most, you know, um, if you could impress the king of England when he comes over to your house, that's he's seen quite a few good houses and you're, you're really going some. And and she gets there and she is blown away. In fact, you, you said that there's three idioms <laughs> which possibly are coined for the first time here. I think so. I wish if if anyone who's listening to this podcast has some sort of expertise in etymology and can actually tell me if this is true. I've been making this claim and without verifying it. But I think this might be the first ever occurrence in the English language, as in when it was translated, of one, it took her breath away, uh, verse Five, two, um, uh, uh, sorry, verse seven. I saw it with my own eyes, and three, I wasn't told the half of it. <laughs> and and you need all three to give you just the the jaw dropping moment. This is she really is blown away, and um, th- there's there's various things that really catch your attention. One is the wisdom of this guy. So um, she comes with hard questions. Verse one. She's been storing them up. She's. She's heard, oh, yeah, yeah, everyone says, let's see how wise he is when I get there. And then... She's not gullible, is she? She's got like the hardest exam she can come up with. 
And then verse three, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And we discover this about Solomon. He's asked the Lord for special wisdom and God granted it to him. And and I guess we've all had that experience of, you know, perhaps a, a, a teacher or a professor and you ask them something and they just, ah, oh, and they unlock something you hadn't imagined. And then you ask them again and there's like, something else just drops into place and she has this experience where just again and again just she cannot get enough of this guy's wisdom he just understands life in a way that no one that she's met ever does it's worth saying as well that wisdom here doesn't just mean cleverness it's not like he knows really hard maths or i mean he does know lots of stuff but the focus of it is in justice and righteousness and we miss this because we're just diving in in chapter 10 but the most famous display of his wisdom practically in chapter 3 is when the two prostitutes come before him in court and they've both got a son and one of the sons died during the night and each one claims that the dead child belongs to the other woman and the living child is their own and there's a fight over custody basically and Solomon says famously bring me a sword cut the baby in half they can have half each and the true mother says oh in that case let the other woman have the child you know, and immediately Solomon goes well that's the true mother so it, it's kind of clever but it, it's cleverness as it comes to bear on justice here are two people I think significantly at the very bottom of the ladder there two prostitutes yeah and two people at the bottom of society and yet a mother gets to keep her son because of his wisdom so it's it's not just he's a show-off with a high IQ it's He's got the kind of wisdom that governs a country really faithfully and rightly and brings blessing even to the lowest of the lay. Yeah, and he's known um, for his wisdom and his prosperity, but they're, they're paired together in verse 7. Your wisdom of prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. And so she goes to his house and it's kind of his wealth, that he, you know, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, but it's it's the wisdom behind and the wealth together. There's just an, a rightly ordered world that he has made. And it's, it's um, as she notices it, there's just more and more things that, yeah, that's how things should be. I guess aesthetically, it was beautiful. Um, it just, there was an abundance, a, a glory to it. Uh, it says the, um, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. Mm. So she's starting to notice that the, the origin of all this comes from the God he worships, and she's going to comment on that. Mm. Now, it, it, I guess this chapter could be a, a, a favorite place for a prosperity preacher. So if, if our message was be a Christian and you can expect to be wealthy and for life to go well for you and you'll get career advancement and you'll have no health problems and there's a lot of preachers teaching this kind of stuff right now this could be an ideal chapter because you go look solomon trusted the lord and he was wisdom he was wise and wealthy if we trust the lord we'll be wise and wealthy um how would you go about sort of critiquing that what what's gone wrong in that application of this chapter well i guess the the first thing is who is solomon in this <laughs> in this scenario and um when we get to the new testament um, we discover that Jesus says one greater than Solomon is here. Um, and he says that, look, I'm the true king, the truly wise, prosperous one. And actually the, the picture of 
um, this incident, the way, when it maps onto the New Testament, is probably the Magi in the first instance. So people who mm. come from foreign lands to bring their treasures before the, the King of Israel um, in, in Matthew chapter 2. And then at the end of uh, the Bible, in Revelation 21, it says the kings of the earth bring their treasures into um, the New Jerusalem. So I think it does speak of the glory and prosperity of Jesus' reign, uh, but it's not a, a prosperity that we receive until uh, Revelation 21. And in fact, mm. somebody in our group last mm. night w- was thinking about the Beatitude where it says, uh, blessed are you, blessed are your servants, blessed be the Lord. And he says, uh, when Jesus arrives and he has said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the um, those who mourn and so on. So th- Jesus actually says, um, yes, there will be blessing in my kingdom, but it's not the kind of blessing that you're expecting. It's going to be persecution and difficulty. Mm. And then the blessing when it comes, comes from the abundance that God gives to the king that overflows to his subjects. And I guess that's that helps because there is no one in the universe as rich as Jesus, but he has the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth, his possession. Mm. And there's no one in the Bible, as no one in history as wise as Jesus because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so it's not saying we will be ourselves individually supremely wise and rich, but we'll be governed by one who has everything and out of his abundance we share. And that's that's what she realizes about Solomon. So she says, she notices that everyone's happy in his kingdom, which in itself is something, isn't it? Every now and then they do these happiness surveys and find, uh, find out the, the happiest place on the earth to live. And it's always somewhere really unlikely, but certainly not London. And you wouldn't say, oh, everyone in London is so happy about the government. And, and this is never true. But she notices, oh, everyone in your country is happy. And then she says, blessed is the Lord um, who's delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he's made you king. So she realizes it's a kindness to them to be governed by such one as Solomon. And I guess we could take that verse and apply it to ourselves. Well, God really must love us if he's given us a leader like the Lord Jesus. Mm. (laughs) What a blessing that is. So it's not so much just what he gets, but what his people get because of um, the way that the Lord treats him. So, yeah, it's just a a brilliant, brilliant chapter. And it is a glimpse, as we say, of uh, the kingdom, the wealth, the glory of the Lord Jesus. The Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, one greater than Solomon is here. Hmm. And then the happiest chapter gives way to one of the, well, I'll say the most tragic. One and two kings has got lots of tragic chapters, but the first of the many tragic chapters where it all begins to go wrong. Now, there's two sins here. Uh, One is to marry uh, non-Christian wives, or that's an anachronism, but marry wives from countries that don't know the Lord. And the other one is to turn away from God and worship other gods. And uh, those two sins are related together in in what happens. And you had a good opening question for your Greek, you said yesterday, in terms of how tempted Solomon would have been. (laughs) Yeah, like he's he's such a wise guy. He really knew a lot of stuff about the world and about God. And if you'd said to him in his prime, um, I wonder, do you think you will end up worshipping Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, which is how the writer talks about the the fake God that the Ammonites worship. Um, And obviously Solomon would have just 
you know, shook his head. What a ridiculous thing to have said. But what what we see is that there are steps. So nobody gets wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do this ridiculous thing and start worshipping a false god. But But what we see in this passage is the steps someone goes to to get to that scenario. And they're very little and understandable mm. steps. Um, so there was one command, you shall not enter into marriage uh, with the nations, uh, neither they with you, in verse 2. It's just a, just one command and then a warning, uh, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And I, I guess that there's various reasons people... Um, kind of ignore warnings in the bible and usually it's oh yeah no that's a very important warning for some people obviously for me i i don't need that you know i'll be okay if i you know marry a non-christian um because i've got a strong faith or or whatever it is that's Mm. probably how uh solomon rationalized it and we we rationalize all kinds of things like uh yeah it's okay if i don't find a, a healthy church because i've actually had such a good christian upbringing i i'm i'm like a camel i'm full of nutrients and i i can get across the desert um and actually no 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 we need manna every day you, you're you, you always need a new meal um but we, we, there's ways we have of rationalizing that, that what is useful and, and normal for everyone else doesn't apply to me and maybe we you know, you can think of some in your own heart mm. where you, you kind of rationalize sin. So that's that's one of the, the steps that he takes. He kind of, he thinks, yes, I get this, but it doesn't apply to me. And I guess in, in doing that, he's basically saying that God's word's untrue because God says the warning is actually a promise, isn't it? If you marry these women, then they will turn your heart to their gods. And Solomon basically is saying, no, they won't. So it's very Garden of eden when if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. God says, these women will turn away your heart. No, they won't turn away my heart. So it's actually by thinking that you're stronger than God's warning, you're actually saying he's lying or he's he's bluffing. And we've, we've seen that before in, in the Bible. I guess it is the, the essence of sin. You have to deafen, deafen your ear to what God is saying to you. And... Uh, we were looking that there's a verse in Nehemiah 13 where it it kind of quotes from Solomon's experience here um, and there's a really uh, interesting word which I'll read with emphasis so it says did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of um, foreign women among the many nations there was no king like him he was beloved by his God God made him king over all Israel nevertheless foreign women made even him to sin mm. And that word even, and it's, mm. I think it's meant, to, it's meant to catch us out because if, if this guy who had so much going for him, so much wisdom, and he got corrupted by pairing himself with someone he didn't love the Lord, um, do you think you're better and cleverer than Solomon? And that's basically the challenge, isn't it, for somebody who thinks, uh, I'll be okay, I'll date the non-Christian, I'll be fine. Um, it's like, yeah, do you know better than Solomon? I think we were talking about this earlier, Andrew, and we both agree that the most frightening words in the whole thing are in verse 4, when we read, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. So the consequences don't kick in straight away, and I guess that might lead to the complacency, because he 
has one wedding and it's oh it seems to be okay i don't have any inner compulsion to go and worship milcom and then another wedding another wedding and maybe then the 300th wedding and i mean it's kind of extreme he goes to goes crazy 700 wives in the end um but it seemingly without consequences or at least without immediate consequences and that might make him think i suppose no no it's been fine god warned me but it turns out i can i can juggle both but sure enough um, in the end, God's word's true. And God said, your wives will turn away your heart. And verse 3, his wives turned away his heart. And verse 4, when he was old, his wives turned away his heart. Um, and so that's just a, a warning that you can store up problems later um, by unrepentance in the in the short term. But it, it might seem like there aren't going to be consequences. And it's um, it's easy to uh to, to light the fuse and ignore it and then the explosion doesn't actually go off for decades but the point was he hadn't repented and he was carrying on with his old ways i think one of the, the striking things um, for us when we were looking at this is i, th- I think often um bible readers we, we get the idea that the heart is the beginning and that the wellspring as as proverbs 4 puts it and we need to mm. you know out of the heart the mouth speaks the heart's the the big the the core of who we are and we need to watch out for it Um, but what this verse is saying verse four is that it's it's not our heart affecting our actions which is what we're used to but it's our actions affecting our hearts and because it says when solomon was old uh, his wives turned away his heart after other gods um so what's what's going on is in the in the other direction where because of uh, his actions he ends up with a heart that goes astray um, and mm. we think, you know, it's just a little sin, just a little sin. Um, I'm in control. And yet the fuse has been lit and then our heart follows and the explosion goes off. Uh, there's obviously the most direct application to this is being in partnership or marriage with somebody who's not a believer. Um, and it's become a very sort of common thing in, in church and lots of, people dating non-Christians. Sometimes people say, oh, the Bible doesn't really forbid it, or where does it say it in the Bible? And people reach for verses like, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers from Corinthians. But this is actually even clearer, isn't it? It's, uh, this is going to be the consequence. And then Nehemiah warns, this is the consequence. I mean, can we just think partially what we would say to people in different situations? What would you say to people in our churches who find themselves in a marriage with an unbeliever? Because they've, either because they made this mistake or because they were converted and their spouse wasn't, what do you say then? Well, there is a, a part of um, the Bible that addresses that directly. So 1 Corinthians 7, I guess in the first generation of Christians, lots of people were becoming a Christian um, after, you know, even after they'd got married. And um, so there were lots of marriages where one was Christian and one wasn't. And, and the, the Paul says, just stick with it. Be a good husband or wife to them. That's that's part of your calling now. You're not to separate just because of that. Mm. Um, and um, actually, the, uh, the there's a place in 1 Peter 3 where non-Christian wives are given their, the strategy of how to act in that situation and they're to be the best wives that they can be and with the hope that they will win their husband without a word when they see, you know, the conduct of their lives so there's real hope Mm. and opportunity in those situations 
Um, but that's different from saying that we, we enter into them. Um, and the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, at the end of it, gives counsel that widows are must only marry in the Lord. So it is the same message as here. And and I guess I, if I was having that conversation, I, I'd probably want to think what it was that was the attraction. So try and understand what what they th- are looking for in that person that they think Christ is not going to deliver. Hmm. Um, that might be a good starting point. Hmm. Um, and although we can all point to some happy endings, kind of exceptions, there's the the non-Christian who ended up getting converted, whatever. That's God's unusual mercy and for every happy ending there's many unhappy endings of either very painful marriages or even situations where like for solomon um one's heart is turned away from the lord Mm. and because of that so it is a very serious warning and i guess one for our age one of the um uh, interesting things here is we we were looking on solomon as a type of jesus and at the beginning Mm. And we're thinking, you know, he points us to one greater than Solomon who's coming. I'd almost forgotten there was a happy half of this study because we end up with a miserable <laughs> one. So, yeah, it was chapter 10 was happy. Chapter 11 is miserable. And and we also saw that the way the second passage applies to uh, to us is through Nehemiah 13, that we're not to be like Solomon in this regard. But there's a way in which um, this kind of makes us yearn for a better Solomon. Do you mm. want to talk about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's part of the tragedy of it, isn't it? That chapter 10 is so beautiful, but so brief. So if you thought, wow, a a, a nation at the height of its prosperity and justice and the king is a blessing to everybody. And, and, you know, within a generation that there's a civil war and there's bloodshed and um, tyranny. And it's just what you really want in life is a utopia that lasts for longer than a few years isn't it you don't just want to live through a, a period of prosperity you want permanent prosperity and it we have that in jesus because he's a king he's not going to jeopardize it so solomon was wise but then he threw it away and jesus is wise and, and won't throw it away so that our confidence of jesus faithfulness and sinlessness mm. is gives us the very it gives us the happy forever after rather than just happy for a generation we were actually looking on sunday at a sermon um that paul preaches in acts 13 and he says we bring you the good news um that jesus has been raised indestructibly and this is this is the hope isn't it you want a good king but not one who then peters out or goes off the rails uh, or who dies and mm. uh, we uniquely can have real hope uh, because we have a king who remains faithful and will never uh he won't be voted out uh, he won't be destroyed he he will continue forever thank you very much for listening if there's others that you think would benefit from these podcasts do share it with them uh, spread the word and join us next time as we look at 2 kings chapter 17